What a wonderful weekend it is to remember and celebrate what the Lord has done for us. No small thing. Hebrews chapter 2 says, How shall we ever escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So many different religions on earth today present such wonderful, often teachings, insights, and such like, and have all kinds of different things they, they want to reward us or reward you with, but there's only one single religion that offers you a free gift of eternal life. Only one gift, free salvation, and that's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody like Him. An amazing Savior that He is, and I enjoy His friendship. He says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. We are His friends because we know His plans and He shares with us. He bought us with a very expensive price, and you are very valuable to God. There are no angels in this room. You are not an angel. And I thank God for that, that I'm not an angel, because God made billions of angelic beings for different functions. They have, with instant creation, they had immortality and abilities that were beyond any human capacity. They could move through time, space, and arenas of all, all kind and take on any form, shape, and powers. But then, having been disappointed by one that he had given free will to, Lucifer, and taking a third of his of the angels with him, he then changed the modus operandi for creation. The first time God ever did this, he took his own DNA, he didn't make another angel, he took his own DNA and reproduced himself. We are made in his image. No angel is made in his image, no angel was worth redeeming or saving. You, on the other hand, are to die for. You are to die for, and he did. That's why the devil hates you, hates everything about you, because he cannot be and have what you have, the, the uncompromising love of the Almighty God, the unchanging, unfailing. Satan and his third of his angels have sinned only once with the rebellion, and the lake of fire awaits them. You've sinned more than once this week. And you've been redeemed and redeemed and redeemed. And that's why we should say so. We are redeemed. It's a wonderful salvation. That's why we, this weekend, remember his death and resurrection. We celebrate more than just an Easter egg hunt and good chocolate. We celebrate new life and the wonderful salvation he gave us, always remembering what the price that he paid. That's why we have the breaking of bread and why we do communion, because we want to remember, not to ever forget, that it was no small thing that he gave us his freedom and not to waste it, but to fully enjoy the fullness thereof. Right? All right. This evening, however, I've been prompted by the, repeatedly by the Holy Spirit to share with you something that I've not shared before or preached before, and the Lord wants me to share this with you in John chapter 2. If you read in your Bibles with me, people don't page anymore in the Bibles. They just swipe their iPhones or whatever else. The book of John, written by John. If I mention the name John, you all think of this rotund, bearded gentleman when in fact John was about 19 when he met Jesus. He was 30 years old and all his disciples were younger than him. And John was one of two brothers, as was Andrew and Peter. They came from Capernaum. They went to hear about this revivalist, John the Baptist, and from there they heard about Christ and was sent for. And that's where the whole discipleship began. The whole journey began with them. John 
was a very interesting personality. He was very confident and they called him the him and his brother the sons of thunder because they were pretty much aggressive and wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy people. And uh, we see in John's life and the pattern that he, he in the book of John refers to himself. He's the only one that refers to himself like that as the one whom Jesus loved. Nobody else thinks that but John, evidently. <laughs> Nevertheless, they asked him, who, asked the Lord which one is going to betray him because he was always against, he's had a head, always close, physically close to Jesus. And Peter was the other high profile of the 12 disciples who seemed to be always struggling, trying to win the approval of Jesus. He did a lot of strange things that John never did. Peter was the one that wanted to walk on the water when all the other 11 stayed. Peter was the one that wanted to build a tent on the transfiguration. Peter was the one, after others being, having feet washed, wanted to wash Jesus' feet. Peter was the one who had a knife in his hand or a sword, a small sword to nick the man's ear off at, when arresting Jesus. Peter was the one who was so adamant about so many things, trying to impress Jesus. John never tried. He was so confident that Jesus loved him. And I've come to the the thought or the understanding that I wonder if we could all be as confident as, God, in, as John was in God's love if we'd be prone to make less mistakes like Peter trying to get his approval when we really can be comfortable having it and enjoying his love. Because God does love you and there's nothing that can change it, not very easily. I have three children and they have disappointed me repeatedly throughout their lives and I love them with great passion to this day. And I'm an evil father, as are you, evil parent. And that wasn't my words. Jesus said to his disciples, you then who are evil, give your children good gifts. So in relation to God's fatherhood, our parenting is totally evil. That's how good God is. And so if I'm this good to my children, I can only expect God to be even that more of a father and so much more compassionate and consistent than I could ever possibly be. Are you understanding what I'm trying to tell you? God loves you. There is nothing you can do to stop that. No matter how it feels or looks to you, the devil who wants to keep that from you will always fill your mind with fears and doubts and try to dissuade you from loving God. He is the, the his ministry, his fine-tuned ministry is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you to God and he accuses God to you. He tells you always when things go wrong, he wants to blame God and why didn't God intervene and he wants to get you in a place where you don't think God is for you. And that's why we go through this lack of love or appreciation for God's love. John wrote his gospel way much later than the others did. Matthew was a tax collector and so was given to writing an educated man and he was very focused on the messianic prophecies. Throughout his writings he focuses very clearly to try and prove that Christ was and is the Messiah that they were expecting the first time. They're expecting a Messiah now in Israel, the second the actual first coming they're expecting, but we know it's the second. And then we had Mark, who was one of the outer, outer 70. He was family of Barnabas. As you will find out, he was a nephew, and it's in the book of Acts. And, and he was an interesting man. There was all kinds of discrepancies and arguments about him, but he was restored and wrote the book of Mark, a very interesting man. Uh, I would like to have met him of all the disciples. He's the one I would like to have met because he was an interesting man in, by his writings, I can tell, the way he thought. Luke was a latecomer and an outsider that was a Greek that became a Jew and then became a proselyte and then became a Christian. He was so adamant looking for God, highly educated doctor, not a chiropractor, but a doctor. And so he was, um, 
But, but chiropractors are really good too when they're Christians. They'll straighten you out, really. <laughs> and so he was a doctor and he was uh, a very educated man too and reconstructed the life of Jesus with different reports. So his, his book is inclined to be very much chronologically correct or ordered, I think. John was much deeper and philosophically inclined. You can see how he begins his book, unlike the others, with the actual happenings of the virgin birth and John the Baptist. He begins with philosophy right away. In the beginning was the word. He brings the whole message. He relays messages like the vine and the branches that no one else relays. He has all kinds of accounts that nobody else has. He wrote the book much later in life, and his style was so much more sophisticated and very different to all the others. But we read in the book of John, chapter 2, he refers to an incident that happens near to Nazareth. In fact, you go from Nazareth to Galilee, you will definitely, uh, you will find this place of Cana where the wedding was taking place. Now, I want you to know tonight that, that Jesus lived a, a pretty normal life, seemingly, until he was 30, before his ministry began. And I always admire Mary. I admire her so much. I, if, the older I get, the more I absolutely astound myself with this woman, that she meets, meets an angel on the road and her response is to becoming pregnant. I mean, the, the bizarre idea of being pregnant when, you, when you're not even, when you're still a virgin, you have not married in a small village like Nazareth in the Jewish faith to go home and just to carry this burden. Imagine if she had shared with her mother. You always want to, you know, always want to share with someone. Mom, I want to tell you a secret. I'm pregnant. But it's not Joseph. God, God made me pregnant. I'm just a virgin. Can you imagine how strange that sounds to everyone, even to her? Yet her response was, let it be to me according to your will. Today, a lady who has three children said to me, that fourth baby not coming out of my body. And, she just was, and people often do that, often say that, because I, I know the things they go through physically and they don't want to have children, but Mary was so willing to do whatever, she was so abandoned. And then to add to her amazing personality and character, they bring the child for dedication to the temple in Jerusalem to this old prophet, priest man, Ananias, and, and he says, now I can go to my rest. I've seen the salvation of Israel. And he prophesies over this child. And he turns to Mary and says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, you're going to suffer. Because you obey God, you're going to suffer. Charming. She stayed around Jesus all the time. She was always devoted to him. Even after he left, she was with the disciples. She was on the day of Shaviot, of Pentecost. She was there at the upper room. She was there. She was there all the time with all the Christians. She was very devoted to the Lord in more ways than one. And we find, her, we find in John chapter 2, we find her at this wedding. And I, I wonder where her, the father is because he doesn't participate a whole lot in, this, in the life of Jesus. We only hear his mother and your brothers are here. Uh, verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. So if you went from Nazareth and walked to Capernaum, you'd go past or close to, C to Cana. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So they were living a pretty ordinary life in that sense. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. 
So when he speaks to her, because she knows, she's very sure of who he is. I don't know what Joseph was thinking, because Joseph didn't want to marry her in the first place. He had to have a dream that made him more convinced he had to do it, but he wasn't keen to do it. And so his mother said to the servants, and this is what I want to share with you tonight. These are the words for you tonight. Do whatever he tells you, just do it. Now, I want to tell you today that this is a key to attract God. There are things that I teach that attract God. We can often displease the Lord. People know about that, but there are things that attract God. And one of the things that attract Him is obedience. God's attracted to people that will do what He says. You may think you do what He says, but it's the pattern of man to do only some things. Let me give you an example. David, King David, is still to this day heralded as the greatest king of Israel ever. Amazing man in many ways, yet he was a complete throwback. Red hair, red complexion, not your typical looking Jew. Then to add to our interest, there's no mention of a mother anywhere in historical books or in the Bible. Nothing. He's the eighth child. And his father blatantly does not invite him when he has to go to the feast with the seven other boys, leaves David behind because in the father's mind, his son is disqualified. David writes in Psalm 51, In sin was I born, in iniquity was I conceived. So David's aware of something that's suspicious about his own birth. Yet, there was something very unique about him. God said, I found David a man after my own heart. Looking at David's life and the things he did, he wasn't the best father. The captain of the army told David, if you continue to mourn for this idiot Absalom, we're all going to leave you. We're tired of this now. And then he had a problem with women. Historically, he had 300 wives and concubines, yet he still had an eye for a married woman that was bathing outside. And he didn't just, momentary moment of weakness was overtaken, he actually looked at her for some time, and then he inquired after her, and then he sent for her. It took time for her to get to his palace and up where he was, so he pursued it. And of course she got pregnant, and then in his wonderful man of his own heart, God's own heart, he has the man killed. He may as well have run a sword through himself. That's how much he was involved in getting that man killed. And God calls him still the man of his own heart. And you have to wonder what it was that God liked about him. Fortunately, we have it in writing. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says, After removing Saul as king, God gave them David, testifying of him, saying, I found David a man after my own heart, because he will do everything I ask him to. My immediate response when I read this and understood it, I said, but I do everything you want. And God laughed at me and said, you don't even hear half the things I say, let alone do them. And I've come to learn and find out that we struggle to hear God about things we don't like, don't want to. Jonah said, speak, O God, and then he says, go to Nineveh, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Go ahead and speak, God, that the devil's trying to mess me up. And he didn't want to go. In fact, he deliberately defied God by going the opposite direction. Of course, none of you might do that. I wonder how many in this room will do whatever God asks of you. And then Ananias is praying. 
Oh Lord, I love you with all my heart, whatever you want of me. Oh, nice. Yes, Lord. I want you to go to the house on Straight Street. Here you'll find a man praying. His name is Saul of Tarsus. He's seen you in the vision. But Lord, you haven't heard what I've heard about him. And he argues with God. And so many of us will debate so many things. To obey God, you have to first hear what he wants. You have to be open to hear what he says. Now, Jesus said in John 16, verse 12, he said, Are you, am I boring you? Are you all listening? Jesus said, I have much more to say to you. I've got a whole lot to tell you. More than two disciples now. More than you can now handle or bear. So God got stuff he wants to tell you, but you can't handle it. And that's a frightful thing because you really want God to speak to you. If my wife wants to frustrate me, all she's got to say to me is, I want to tell you, but I'm not sure I should. Then I, it, it will wear me down. I want to know what she was going to tell me. And I'll find, I'll bribe, I'll threaten, I'll do something. I'll find a way to get out of her. But this, Jesus says, I want to tell you stuff, but I'm not sure you can handle it. And there is a certain heart that we must have or attitude to hear what God's going to say. He may be speaking to you all the time, but you can't hear it. Now, I've learned over the, my walk with the Lord these 40-odd years that the bottom of the food chain of obedience or hearing God is money. You came into this world with nothing and you leave with nothing. Yet money will change everything in your life and your thoughts, your attitude, the lack thereof. In the church, if we receive an offering, people clam up. They get all tensed up. I always tell pastors, teach on giving because it stimulates the faith. The ones that are offended by it are not givers anyway, so you're not losing any money. So just go ahead and keep on teaching so those that can't benefit from it do benefit from it. It's the right way of God. But money, God never wanted your tithe, doesn't need your tithe. He wants you to be obedient. And so he initiates tithing, which is he gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Tithing is not necessarily New Testament or Old Testament. It was before any testament. Abraham introduced it with faith. You grab the faith from Abraham and the example of his life, but you don't grab his gift or his example of giving to God out of his own spontaneity. So I want to teach you to get loose of that stuff because we in America have been the biggest givers in God's kingdom historically in the world. And the devil has done all he can to mess with our morals. Hollywood has disrupted our complete lifestyle and moral code and compass. As Hollywood's detected to us one decade what becomes reality in the next. And then the finances, there's not a country in the world where you can get a credit card in the mail you didn't ask for. <laughs> Repeatedly, until you take the sticker off. That credit card keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming, and then you call that number and you start spending money on a credit card you didn't want, you shouldn't have, you can't afford buying stuff you didn't need. And you were so sure you'd paid off, and you didn't. And 10, 20 years later, you're still paying off your credit cards at a high exorbitant interest rate. You'll fight for your mortgage, you'll fight for your car, but you'll keep paying 18% to 20% in your credit card and so become enslaved to, to the credit system. You got quiet in me now. And so the devil's stealing your money because what you should be giving to God is the best investment of your life. Now, if you can't obey God with ungodly mammon, you won't obey him with spiritual riches. And that's the bottom of the food chain. And we in America are cultured to give tips. We tip people that cut our hair, people that take our bags at the airport, people that serve us at the restaurant. Wherever we go, we tip. It's very natural. I always, when I'm a hotel, I always leave a tip. I just do. I just, I actually call it an offering. 
but I give them a little more than is expected of me usually. And so if we have this culture of tipping, it spills over into the church. When offering time comes around, we'll put a few dollars in. We don't miss it. We already in our mind have calculated a piece we can give. But offering is holy to God, and it's an act of your spiritual worship, an act of your heart. And it's gotten lost in translation. And I don't want you to lose it because I'm teaching you about obeying. Jesus said to, or Mary said, whatever he says, just do it. And the reason why she said that is because there's no logic. If Jesus would explain, I want you to fill these vats with water, because I'm going to do a miracle now, or show it in a small scale, this is so bizarre and outside of their framework of reference, that he's going to do a miracle. There's no logic. Why would I fill the vats with water? Why? And we often contest or question God when we, th when we think God's telling us something. And if it's something we don't like, we'll want a confirmation, or two, or three, or a fleece, or a sign from heaven. And even then we're not sure. But if we got a prophetic word, or an indication from God, something we really like, that's supposed to go to Hawaii, you don't want a confirmation. You just, in this case it's not so, you just want to go and say, was God told you to go? And that's the gospel truth in our nature. But what God's looking for, and he's attracted to people that would obey him, that would really want to hear what he's got to say. Jesus set the pace and the example of always being on target to hear what the, his whole methodology was to spend such a lot of time in prayer to make sure he got exactly the information that he needed to do his job. In John 17, he prays this long chapter of prayer, and he in verse 4 he says, Now glorify me, because I have done all you gave me to do. He hadn't died yet, but he had measured himself and known exactly what the Father asked him to do. In fact, he said, I do nothing and say nothing unless the Father has told me or spoken to me. And he, he made sure he stayed on target. This woman, Canaanite, wants to be healed. I cannot pray for her, minister to her, because I was told only to minister to the Jews. He did exactly what he was told. He was very obedient in every way. And that was his pattern. And the way to know what God wants he's, is to go up on the mountain and pray. He always made sure he knew what was expected of him, and that's what he did. When something unusual happened, he separated himself and got re-clarified re instructions. And if we can start to, as children of God, because we are God's children, we are spirit living in a body, it's only a temporary house, start learning to hear what he wants, be open to it, change our minds and our hearts, and do whatever he says, become completely abandoned. Why is it we don't hear? Why do we struggle to hear sometimes? Because we're not completely abandoned to him. We're not always willing. We, you know, I've had, in my own family, my own children said, God can ask me anything, but you mustn't ask me that. I will not do that. There's always something you won't do. Abraham became a wonderful hero, and historically and throughout the word of God and out heavens, he'll be known as a hero because God asked him to kill his son. Now, please understand the longevity of this horrible journey for him. He was already an old man with no children. To have hope is a positive expectancy. All hope was really lost because there's no reasonable hope to have at, the, at his age. It just wasn't. He was really almost 80. There's no way he's going to have a child. It's not possible. And so time goes by, and he has Ishmael, 
who's 13 years old, and he's, he's now 99, he's, Ishmael is 13, and an angel comes and says, you're still going to have a child. 24 years after the first time the promise came, you've got to change your name, and you've got to circumcise all the males of the household, and uh, a 99-year-old man getting circumcised is no joke. <laughs> Yet three months later, his wife was pregnant. I still wonder how that was physically possible, but it was, apparently. And it was so late in life when he got this child, and then to add to his sorrow, the firstborn, Ishmael, he'd now gotten used to, had to send him away. That wasn't fun. And now Isaac was such a wonderful kid. He was the valedictorian. He was the best at every sport you could imagine. Everybody loved him. He was just the prize kid anybody could ever dream to have. One son, the promised child. Now God says, I want you to sacrifice him. My immediate reaction is, I've had too much son. I'm getting senile. God would never ask something he gave to me, ask it back. In fact, there are things in your life that are like an Isaac that are so precious to you that you would not surrender it. You'd give something else, God, but not that thing. That's too precious to me. And God will often ask you for that very thing that seems so precious to you, that very Isaac in your life, because he wants you to be sure that you are his complete abandonment. And Abraham was so willing. Now, please understand the whole logistics of it. It wasn't just go and sacrifice your son. He took servants, mules, and began to look for the mountain. Two days in his long journey. He gets to the mountain. Now there comes a time in your life when it's become so intense, it's you and God. Not you and God and someone else. However spiritual or however devoted they may be to you. So now he takes the boy and up the hill he goes. Now he's going up the hill and of course Isaac says, well, what are you going to sacrifice? God himself will provide. God will provide himself. And of course he was so willing to go all the way with it. He was so devoted. He was so abandoned to the Lord. Now, I'm inviting you today in this time of Easter where the Lord gave everything he's got. The Lord didn't give one of his sons. He didn't give something he could afford. He gave it all. There was nothing more to give. Amazing, full-out sacrifice. And all he's asking of you is to be abandoned to him. We spend so much time and energy on stuff and things and life here, which is all so temporary and all passes all too fast. And what you really want to do is let God change our hearts that we come totally his, whatever he wants. If we can be in that position, we'll hear what God wants to say. When you go to God to, for him to speak to you, it's difficult to hear the Lord if you don't really want to hear certain things. And often when you go to God for God to speak to you, most of the time he hasn't really got an ability to speak because we don't want to hear it. My children came one, we used to live near an ice rink in Africa, and my children came one time to me and asked me, can they go ice skating? And I said, no. And apparently that was the wrong answer because they began to change their pitch of their voice and rephrase the question repeatedly. And so I, had, I thought to myself, I have 50% chance of getting the answer right. I either could say yes or no, and apparently when they came to me, they weren't anticipating or accepting no. The only way they can, were only going to accept yes. Because when I, if I'd said yes, they wouldn't have argued with me. They wouldn't have said, no, we don't really want to go. We just don't say yes, don't say no. But I said no, and they kept on and kept on because that's what they wanted. And so it got such an aggressive or unpleasant atmosphere with this constant pestering me that I said to them, girls, let's, let's make this clear now. In the future, when you want to go ice skating, tell me you're going. I'm taking you now. I'm paying for it, and we're leaving right now. 
Then, I, then it makes more sense to me than you asking me. Why are you even asking? You've already made up your mind. And I learned that day when the children of God come to the Lord, they've made up their mind what God may do or may not do. If he doesn't respond the way he wants, we're going to bind the devil and do warfare and, quote, and hammer him with scriptures until he gives us what we want because we think that's what he's supposed to have. If we completely abandoned it to him, then he can do whatever he wants. We're so willing to do whatever he wants. And God is looking for those that are abandoned and devoted to him, that love him above all. The love God is far more powerful than fearing God. And Jesus said that is the greatest command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your heart must belong to daddy, not to husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, child. It belongs to God first and foremost that you can have the fullness of, your, of life in, in your own being, just loving God. When you love God and you're so willing to do whatever he wants and you're completely abandoned to him, it is much easier to hear when you ask him questions because you're willing to hear anything he's got to say. And then he can speak to you. And when he speaks, then we have to become the doers of the word, which becomes another challenge in our life, because the easy things are so easy to do that sometimes we postpone them or procrastinate, or we're going to get to it. You get this unction from the Lord, you're supposed to bake someone a cake, or call someone, or pray for someone, something that's very simple, and you just don't get round to it until they've called you, and then you feel bad because you didn't respond when God put it in your heart. And God's looking for someone that'll just do what he says and respond to him. And the harder things, when God asks you to do them, there's a, a war on the inside of you with God, a debate, and a, almost a, trying to make a deal with God. And let me be very clear to you. You can barter with God and you can make a deal, but you will always regret it. You can change God's mind. People often debate with me, and it's very scriptural. I can show you countless amount of instances where it's happened. Not only can I show you scripture where, for example, Jeremiah 18, going to the potter's house, he says, you are like this clay in my hands. If I choose to do you good and bless you and you do something wrong, I'll change my mind. If you do, if I another time speak and tell you I'm going to beat you and, and deal with you in a harsh way and you, do, and you repent, I'll change my mind again. And so he's quite willing to change. Hezekiah, God, sends a wonderful word to this loving, godly man and says, get your house in order, you're coming home. And then he turns to the wall and begs God for more years and Isaiah comes back and says, okay, God's added 15 more years to your life. But the 15 years God gave him, which seemed to be a blessing, were actually the most horrid years of his entire career as king. Consequences. Moses says to God, what will people think of you if you destroy Israel? Come on now, God, don't do it. They'll say, what kind of person, what kind of God is this of Israel that kills his own people? So God says, okay, I won't destroy them, but then it'll be on you. Your responsibility. In the book of Acts, Paul says, he says that I, I have to appear before Caesar and God has graciously granted all the lives of those sailing with me. God changed his mind because he had prophesied that we're going to lose our lives, the cargo and our ship. This is what's going to happen if we leave here. But it changed because Paul petitioned the Lord. We can pray until God will do something for us because he loves us so much but there's a consequence because he knows what's best. Daddy knows what's best. And I'm appealing to you to become abandoned to him. We are so driven by our own little egos or our own desires or what we want or our own ambitions or even sometimes driven by our needs. Our needs, we are 
have brokenness in our souls, even though we're born again, our souls are cracked and not completely healed. Whether you're trying to please mom and dad, there are people in this room trying to please their dad who's dead and gone, they're still trying to prove to dad they're not a loser. Still trying to prove to God because they're driven by this thing and they make decisions based on that, based on their wounds or hurts, whatever it is. And that's why Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the brokenhearted and set the captive free. He wants to make you whole if you'll let him. We often don't want to because we enjoy our pain. We like the self-sympathy and we love to recite it and rehearse it. I myself can't stand it when Christians after 40 years are still telling me about their childhood. I, I don't want to hear it anymore. When they tell me 40 years they saved and then they still talk about their childhood and how mom did this and dad, I say, you must have me confused with someone who cares. <laughs> because if you're 40 years a Christian, you shouldn't be whining anymore about your childhood. It's getting really old. You should be helping someone else. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's got a childhood. So get over your little self. And let's move on. Are you listening to me? People that go, constant ministry. Constant. Really? You don't, you don't want to get free? You, you are mocking the power of Jesus, who, resurrection of power. If you keep going for the same healing and deliverance, something's wrong. Mm. All right. So here I am today to, to tell you, whatever he says to you, just do it. Make it a habit of your life to respond. If you mishear what he says and you with all your heart just did what you thought God said, he'll bless it anyway. Because I believe King David did even what he thought God was saying. So if you can just respond quickly and not labor on it, that's where the trouble comes. You labor and you think it to, you process it, you try to think it through. No, just respond. Just do it as quick as you can. And you watch what God will do for you. And he'll test you in all areas of your life. He'll test you. The closer you walk with him, the more abandoned you become to him. Are you listening to me? So I'm reaching out to you today to ask you just to do whatever he says. Don't try and debate it, understand it. Please don't try and understand it. It's a joke. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Even if he explained to you, you still won't get it. I remember my grandson, who's now 15, he was only about four year old, and he's still to this day, like, he got an engineering brain. He was suddenly four, and he says, Grandpa, how does this engine, the car engine, work? I said, Well, Fallon, what happens is there's an explosion in a contained area called a cylinder, and that that explosion actually is fueled by gasoline that becomes like a gas and spark, the spark plug puts a spark into it, pushes that, and that explosion pushes that little, what they call a piston down, which has little rings which keeps it nicely and sealed and pushes it all the way down. And this particular piston has a, is built in such a way that it's, got, it's formed around a crankshaft. And then all these different pistons move at different speeds and different times and different timings. And so it'll begin to turn a crankshaft, which is connected to a differential, which connect, and he lost him, he'd gone already. So, <laughs> He wasn't interested. And the and reason why I'm telling you this is now that's how he, he's a child and I'm, I'm an idiot compared to God. So you want to ask God, Lord, what to, to explain his ways. I, I know what God's doing. Yeah, you know what God, please. He's really, everything he talks to us is in, in baby talk. That's why we needed, the first thing that happened on the day of Pentecost was, was tongues. We needed something so supernatural that our brains couldn't function in it because it's just going to mess it up. Your brain cannot mess up tongues because it's got nothing to do with your brain. Paul says, I will sing in my spirit, I will sing in my understanding, I'll pray in my spirit, and I'll pray with my understanding because it's so out of your understanding. But your understanding only mess it up. Yes? So may I ask you please to make a habit 
Start a habit today of doing whatever God says. Don't wait. Don't sit in it. Don't debate it. Make it a lifestyle and a habit and watch what God will do for you. It is a wonderful, exciting adventure to obey the Lord. So many of you are so behind your life schedule that God has for you because you haven't learned a simple thing just to do what God says. You're still struggling to find yourself. And now I'm here to appeal to you, just do what God says. Don't complicate life. It's very simple, very easy. We have difficulty hearing God, and it's a, it's a place you've got to find. You know, even the disciples struggled to hear. In Acts 16, they were trying to enter Bithynia, and the Spirit wouldn't let them go, and they tried to preach another place, and the, and the Spirit of the Lord wouldn't let them preach. They were trying to find God's mind to do His will, to do, build His kingdom, and God couldn't speak to them because they were so frantically trying to hear God's will. That that night when Paul's about to fall asleep, that's when he has a vision. Because when you're about to fall asleep, you surrender all your anxiety and tension. You won't fall asleep, you're still worrying. So now you're the best place, either in the middle of the night he wakes you up, or right before you fall asleep, or right before you wake up, you're fresh and he's able to talk to you more clearly. And there's a place in your life you have to practice and learn to be that you can hear God. I've been doing this for so long now, 35 years, every, every single day of my life. It's not hard for me to kick into that zone where I can hear his voice. It's easier for me because that's all I do. It exhausts me. People think I'm having fun, but I, I'm, half an hour prophesying tires me more out than 10 hours of preaching. It's very exhausting, but it's not difficult. You just learn to you train yourselves spiritually to kick into that place of to hear the Holy Ghost. And there are times God is silent. He won't speak. And you can whine, yell, bawl, squall, scream, shout. It's not going to change. God's not speaking about some things. This, this isn't. He's the boss. God is God, right? Woohoo! You're excited, I can tell, by faith. <laughs> Hallelujah. When God called me to the prophetic ministry, I was so sure he had the wrong person. So sure. I was a pastor and already I was struggling with that because I couldn't stand people leaving my church. It broke my heart. I couldn't stand it. I would traumatize for weeks when they left. And then one night I wake up and this, I don't, I haven't, I'm not a spooky person. I don't have a lot of out-of-body experiences. I've had three in my life. And this, I was in my bedroom. My wife was next to me. And it was like someone put the light on my room and for hours, God kept saying the same thing over and over to me. He wanted me to, to raise up prophets and to start a prophetic ministry and raise up prophets. And I said, I don't even know what a prophet is. The only thing I read in the Word is they're always in trouble. <laughs> and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm from a Yiddish family, so I have a real Yiddish sense of humor, and I've had to fight it my whole life because I, I, I can't help myself. I, get, I see everything in a funny light. I'm always in trouble for my humor, you know, uh, people walk out of me in a church. I was in a church in Africa years ago, and uh, I, you know, I asked people, what's your name? And then I asked them what they do for a living. And this one guy, I said, what do you do for a living? He's a prosthesis uh, builder. He makes limbs. I don't know. And I don't rehearse the stuff. It just comes out of me. And I started, so I suppose you charge a, uh, <laughs> arm and a leg, right? And people ask you to give a hand. People ask you to give a hand. That's what you do, right? And on and on and on I went, and eventually we were sort of leaving. They just didn't think it was funny anymore. And I, I've had so much, so I've learned to curb that, but it's not easy for me. I don't have to try and be funny, I have to try not to be funny. It's uh, very difficult for me. So I explained to God he had the wrong person, and uh, 
then he said to me, I want you to live by faith. I said, why live by faith? I, 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 I'm getting a meager salary from the church anyway. Well, I want to live by faith. So, and so I said to God, this is my, how clever I am. I said, Lord, I'll tell you what. I have a wife and children. If I didn't have wife and children, I would have gone gladly. But because then I wouldn't have this responsibility, wouldn't have this pressure. I've got, I have to take care of them. And God is so cute. <laughs> Months went by. I've forgotten what I'd said and we've forgotten the whole conversation. And we were on our way to church one Monday morning to do our pastoral duties, which are make sure the toilets are running and close the windows and make sure that the all lights off and the alarms on and the flowers are out and pastoral duties. And so we were out the way to church. The one, one Charmaine was the little two and a half, three year old, and, and my wife and I were in the vehicle. And then we got to a railway line close to our church. And as I was pulling away on the track, the vehicle died. And I could not get the vehicle off that track. I did everything I knew to do. I mean, I'll tell you the details of how I pushed it, tried to push it. The track was too protruding. No one came, not a car. But the train came. And uh, my wife said, just leave the train, leave, run away. And we ran away. And at the embankment, the child had ridden, uh, run the furthest. And the train came and he honked his horn. He was not allowed to stop until he hit something. And he hit the car, pushed it off the track. And then he stopped. And so now... This voice says to me, you are so responsible. You almost killed your family. Give them to me and I'll do, and I'll take care better of them than, than you do and just go where I send you. From that moment to this, 35 years later, I've been doing what I'm doing. Otherwise, I would never have gone to prophetic ministry. I'm just, this is not my nature or personality. I, I've always found it very strange. But the Lord has had to dump so much in my life. In South Africa, there was no such thing as a prophet. So I, had, I started doing it. I had a gift. I, I was very aware of a gift that I had since I was full of the Holy Ghost. I could look at a picture and I could tell all about that person. But then I thought it was fortune telling, so I was scared of it, which is where I come from. And talking about the late 70s, early 80s, and it was very strange to me. And so I had to study the word and I had to learn it the hard way. And I was beaten up by every Sanhedrin in our country. Constant persecution until finally... They embraced me. I became a celebrity in the nation as a prophetic. And then when everybody would prophesy or come to the nation that prophesied, they'd call me and ask me what I think because I'd, I'd established over many years integrity and I taught in the prophetic. And so I learned it the hard way. And so I want to help impart it. That's why I have encounters to try and impart and download what I have from the Lord. I do believe I hear God. I have... Uh, thousands, and I mean thousands, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of testimonies, people all over the world constantly, and it doesn't excite me. For some reason, that does not excite me at all. When they tell me how accurate the prophetic word, and do I remember this word? No, I don't, don't remember. Because I'm only a messenger. I don't try and retain it. I'm only the conduit, you know. So people say, back, don't they try to prophesy over you another child. I'm not handing kids out. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> it's you doing it all by yourself. So you understand that I'm so, I, I'm, I love the Lord and I have a gift and I do it every day of my life. And I, but what thrills me is to reproduce myself when I see other people start prophesying. I have a spiritual son that is credible. He's, uh, he's overnight, he's gotten quick instant fame. He's a young prophet called Andre. I'm hoping one day you might have him in this church, but we want to get the next generation stirred up in, this, in the kingdom too, you know. So we, that's what we, oh, we can't keep it to ourselves and die with us. We must keep passing it on. Anyway, so here comes the prophetic words. Are you ready for them? Yes. Hallelujah. What's it to you? Yes. 